This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. I have a dry erase marker with me. What could it be for? It's called an intrigue hook. Uh, (laughs) We're starting a new series today. Uh, And it's one that I am so excited about because it gets right at the heart of what it is that we are doing here. Uh, What we hope to see happen, not just in us and not just in our church, but in our neighborhoods, where we work, where we go to school, in the world around us. That God would be at work, that God would be bringing systems and peoples and families and governments and us back into the way that he created them to be, that the world would echo with the dignity, with the capacity, and with the responsibility that each of us as people created in God's image carry with us, that there, that everywhere on earth would reflect God's goodness and God's generosity, that there would be no corner of the world or a human heart disconnected from God's love and compassion, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, this thing that we call mission, God's work in the world, and that in a miraculous way that we've actually been invited into. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be on a journey together, and I really do hope that it's a moment for us. I hope it brings clarity of vision to what we've been called to, and I hope that it shapes the church that we are becoming. Mission is what we're going to be talking about, but how do we live into it? Uh, And also equally important, how do we do it well? Well, this is church, and so we're going to start with Jesus. Uh, Paul writes uh, in Colossians 1, he gives such a beautiful depiction of who Jesus is, why we're going to start with Jesus this morning. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, to understand what God is up to in the world, we have to look at Jesus. The image of the invisible God in whom and for whom all things were created. The head of the church, the reconciler of all things. We have to look at Jesus. See, it's in Jesus' life that we'll see how to live out God's mission in the world. And so we're going to start with who Jesus is. And then over the next four weeks, we'll be talking about Jesus' mission and the kingdom that he came to bring. 
And then we'll talk about what that has to do with us, how we've been commissioned to that same mission. And then we'll talk about what that has to do with the church. And there's intentionality in that order that I want us to talk about this morning. Jesus and his kingdom mission, our calling to that same mission and the role of the church in living out that mission. See, it's Jesus that defines mission. And it's the role of the church to empower, equip, and release its members to that mission. Not the other way around. The church is here to embody and empower Jesus's mission, not simply ask for Jesus's blessing as we do our own thing, which can be actually scarily easy to have happen. It can be easy to let our big word for the day, ecclesiology, our take on how we do church, actually be what informs our missiology, how we try to engage the world around us with the gospel instead of rooting that in Jesus's life. And I thought I've had, a thought I've had to sit with in getting ready for this series is, as a follower of Jesus, how much of the way I see the world and the way to live in it is reflective of the church tradition or denomination I grew up in, rather than the way Jesus actually lived? And are there places where those might actually be in conflict with each other? or at least lead in different directions or create different priorities. And so over the next four weeks, let's be asking God to be doing some reordering in us. Jesus and his mission first. And our lives and the church molded, formed, shaped into his image for the sake of the world, to live into his mission. As we get started this morning, let's take some time to pray. And what I'd like to ask you to do first is to just take a moment and just acknowledge to God where you are this morning. We are a collection of diverse stories gathering in one place. And so whether this morning finds you in a place of sorrow or of joy, of hope or of weariness, just take a minute and acknowledge to God where you are this morning and ask God to be at work in us, making all things new. Take a moment and then I'll pray for us as we head into the scriptures. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with your love this morning. That it would overflow in us into the world around us. That we would want to have the desire to step into your mission because of love and for the sake of your kingdom and not for a sense to try to better ourselves or to try to earn something that's not ours, to try to earn that you've given us freely in your cross. God, I pray that you would unite us in that desire. We gather today in and for your name. Amen.
Well, how do we become a people who live and move in the world like Jesus did? Because that's the question, right? And it's why it's important that we spend a few minutes talking about spiritual formation. What we're talking about when we say having our lives formed in Jesus' life or being shaped or molded into the image of Jesus or more simply living like Jesus did with the same heart and intentionality and purpose that Jesus had. Participating in God's mission in the world and spiritual formation aren't super intuitively connected. One seems outward-faced and the other seems more inward-faced, but they're actually both interconnected and they fuel each other. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Now, it's been through a few revs, but here's our working definition for what spiritual formation means. It's really long, but here we go. To be formed into the image of Jesus by the Spirit of God. Now, this is a work in progress, but it's pulled straight from the scriptures, and I want to tell you uh, where that comes from this morning. Because there was this moment when Moses and the Israelites are wandering around the desert, and Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and has this close encounter with God, and it transforms him in a way that alters his physical appearance. If you've seen the episode of Friends, when Ross leaves the teeth whitening gel on for too long, and he is blinding people when he smiles at them, it's like the same kind of situation is happening here. His face, Moses' face is glowing. And so they make some sort of like veiled hat curtain situation uh, for him uh, because the reflection of God's glory through Moses' face is too much for people to be around. And Paul writes about this passage in the way that he explains spiritual formation in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which is where we're pulling heavily from. Now, this is actually a really interesting passage because Paul is critiquing the tendency to stop short or to actually misidentify the end goal and purpose of spiritual formation as better behavior rather than participating in mission. Are we tracking with that? That perfected behavior is not the sum total of God's desired outcome for humanity. It's being transformed into his image by his spirit and the way that that inherently leads us to participate in his work in the world. And Paul does this by contrasting transformation by God's spirit with adherence to the Jewish law, this thing that had become rigid and stodgy and a code of behavior to be enforced, even though that was never its true purpose. And he continues this veil imagery from the story about Moses to describe the blinded experience of trying to have the same kind of spiritual transformation through human effort instead of allowing God to do the work. Read along with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, trying to justify ourselves by the law. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. 
Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Spiritual formation is being formed into the image of Jesus by the Spirit of God. Now, a couple observations about this passage that are important in the way that we think about spiritual formation. Uh, The first is that spiritual formation is God's work. It's not ours. Spiritual formation requires our participation, intentionally choosing to give ourselves to it, but it's not our work. It's the process of God at work in us, forming us into his image through the work of his spirit. Trying to do the work ourselves is like having a veil over our hearts. It's God's work. It's not ours. And the second is that spiritual formation is inside out and not outside in, which gets at this human condition that we all face, this problematic reality that we can change our behavior and never change our hearts. Living missionally is supposed to be an outward reflection of an internal transformation. If we miss the internal transformation piece, listen, we bring our brokenness into God's work in the world. And we can participate, but we might do it for ego. We can participate, but we might do it for power. We can participate, but we might do it with anger or with whatever brokenness within us is still unresolved, untransformed by God's spirit. Spiritual formation is inside out, not outside in. And last, spiritual formation is a process for all the reasons that I just said. And sometimes the pace feels really slow, and sometimes we'll get frustrated with ourselves. But there's no hack to God's work in our lives other than to fully give ourselves to it. Because it's about more than just a change in behavior. There's a purpose to it that is outside of ourselves. It's to actually start to see and care about the world the way God does and to step into moments in the way that God would. Participating in God's redemptive mission is the goal of spiritual formation. It's to love and to care and to give and to serve like God does. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. And Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so we start with Jesus. His life and his mission so that our lives and our churches take on his image. So one question, one of the things we need to pay attention to is how we answer this question. Who is Jesus? Because if we're going to be formed into his image, that's an important question to think about. So let's take a moment and think about it. How would we answer that question? Who is Jesus? 
What words or phrases come to mind? Who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? There's lots of ways that we can answer that question. Uh, there's a video making its way around a weird corner of the internet, the like Australian Christian subculture uh, portion of the internet, where this guy's asking a Google spot who all these people in history are, who's Barack Obama, who's Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the Google spot is pulling all this great information from Wikipedia and that sort of thing. Uh, and then the person asks, who's Jesus? And the Google spot responds, religion is really complicated and I'm still learning which is actually a fair answer. It's a fair answer. Because there's lots of ways that we can answer this question and each get at a facet, a part of Jesus's identity. He's our savior. He's the Messiah. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the son of God. He is our hope. He is our peace. He's our comforter. He's our intercessor. He's the crucified and risen one. 2003, Ashton Kutcher used to wear this hat that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Can we just marvel at that phone that he's got right there? 2003, Ashton Kutcher. But there's a part of Jesus' identity that the gospel writers really want to get across that they're really eager to convince their readers of that's missing from this list. And when I sit down and think about it, it's not the place that my mind usually goes first either. And that's that Jesus is a king. And that he's not just a king, but he is the king. The always and forever king. John's gospel places Jesus all the way back in the story of creation using the same language is Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the long-awaited king that would bring freedom for Israel, that he is a legitimate descendant of the Jewish royal line. And the magi that we talk about, the wise men that we talk about at Christmas, come and visit him and honor him as the king of the Jews, which is a title that Jesus will take up once again later in his life. And Luke's gospel picks up the same thread with Herod, a king so worried that his throne was at stake because of the birth of the king, the promised king that he had every boy under the age of two killed to try to protect it. See, there's urgency that as readers we understand that Jesus is a king, which is probably why Jesus talks about a kingdom so much. It's inherent in his identity. Something that Paul picks up on in that Colossians 1 passage that we read. It's a part of who Jesus is. Take a look at Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17 again. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is a king who came to inaugurate a kingdom. 
And as we look at his life, we see his mission of proclaiming and embodying that kingdom on earth, a mission that as we are formed into his image becomes ours as well. And next week, we'll talk about what that kingdom is like and how it's different from every other kingdom then and how it's different from every other kingdom now. But before we get to what Jesus' kingdom is like, I want us to first sit with this question. What kind of a king is Jesus? See, there's so many people in history who've missed this part of his identity. I think people then and us now miss it. Our minds don't go there because he doesn't act the way that we are used to kings acting. But coming back to this part of his identity puts a really interesting layer on reading the gospel accounts of his life. Because then the man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1 isn't just healed by a supernatural healer. He is touched by the king of the universe. The Samaritan woman at the well isn't just shown living water by a compassionate rabbi. She's shown dignity and brought to life by the king of the universe. So the woman caught in adultery isn't defended, isn't protected, isn't stood with, forgiven, restored by just an impassioned advocate, but by the king of the universe. What kind of a king is Jesus? We're actually going to take a risk and an experiment today and try to answer that question together. Here's what that is going to look like. Jake's going to come back up to the front, uh, and he's going to play some background music for us. And what I want to do is I want to invite you to take a minute or two and sit with this question, what kind of a king is Jesus? And then after a couple minutes, I'll invite you to turn to some of the people around you and share what came up for you. For some of you, this is probably easy and exciting. For some, this might be a stretch. My feelings won't be hurt if many people take a bathroom break in the next three minutes. Um, But here's why I I want us to do this together. Uh, It's a chance for us to be in intentional conversation with each other about something that's important. And I am just really convinced that a collected body of believers in Jesus can come up with a better answer than I can. I can give you three bullet points that I will be very excited about. But I'd love to hear what God's doing in each of our hearts this morning. One other thing that's important for me to say, if you're here this morning and you're still exploring who you think Jesus is, thank you for taking the risk to be here with us this morning. We're so honored that you'd share your journey with us. You are welcome here your questions are welcome here. I would actually love for you to participate in this conversation if you feel up for it, because I think the questions that you're wrestling with, and I think the insights that you might have would actually be really helpful for us. However, if you're not quite in that place, pass is a perfectly acceptable answer. Oh, 
Please be friendly, by the way. Uh, let's remember that. Uh, if you don't know the folks around you, introduce yourselves to each other. And if you want a conversation starter, even if it feels heavy to jump into what kind of a king is Jesus, maybe start with a question like, what's your favorite movie or TV show that has a king in it? Uh, ease in. My, pro my promise is to err on the side of cutting conversation short. So we'll just be in dialogue for about five minutes and then we'll come together and I'd love to hear from you. This comes from a friend who's a teacher, uh, pulling from the teaching philosophy of think, pair, share. TPS for those in the know. So we're gonna think, pair, share this morning. Uh, as we turn into this time, uh, let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with words, with language, with pictures about what kind of a king you are. So important for us to understand. I pray your blessing on this time of personal reflection and then discussion and then collective sharing. I pray you'd be at work in us, that we would listen to you, God, that you would ease uh, our time this morning. We love you. We do this for you. We pray these in and for your name. Amen. All right, take a minute or two and think about this question. What kind of a king is Jesus? All right. We've done some thinking. We've done some pairing. That means that it's time for sharing which is also caring. Stop, somebody stop me from rhyming. Uh, I'll, do, I'll do my best uh, to record kind of what we talk about up here. Uh, this is a whiteboard. It's not super ginormous. This is also an invitation for those of you sitting in the back to sit closer uh, if you would like to. I'll try to not write super small as an act of passive aggression, but. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, I'd love to hear uh, from you what came up in your discussion groups. Feel free to totally sell out the person next to you and nominate somebody else for their wonderful idea also. Uh, what came up? What kind of a king is Jesus? Jacob healing. healing. Yes. Merciful. Lovely. Compassionate. Serving. King of Kings. Kings. Patient. Amen. Eternal. Say that one more time. Forgiving, yes. Opposite. We'll just say opposite of every other king. Yeah. Powerful. Just. Peaceful. 
teaching. Unselfish. Unselfish. By our side, with us, present. Unconditionally loving. Wise. Wise. 